Please be seated. Well, good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're here visiting with us for the first time, maybe from in town or out of town, we're glad that you're here. So thanks for joining us. Um, I will say there are a few of you that have begun visiting uh, regularly this summer that I haven't a chance to actually meet yet. So please come introduce yourself to me afterwards. So when I see your name, I'll know who we're talking about. So come see me. I'm not nearly as somber and scary as I apparently appear from up front, I'm told. So... Welcome again. We're in a series on the book of Genesis, and in, in, in more particular, in the life of Abraham that we find in the book of Genesis. And the, the title of that series is called Living in Light of God's Promises, because Abraham's life was someone, he was someone who was marked by the promises of God. And his life struggle was marked by his uh, coming to grips with claiming and trusting in those promises of God. Uh, and let, let me just say before we read this morning, uh, we have a few more weeks in our summer series. This would be a great time for you, if you're around here this summer, uh, to go back this week and read straight through the Abraham narrative again. Pick up right again at the end of chapter 11 and read up through about chapter 22, chapter 23, and see again the broad, sw- the broad sweep of what God is doing in Abraham's life. And I think it will make each of these sermons uh, help you put them together as they fit in sequence of what God's doing in Abraham's life. Uh, Let me pray for us and we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning and come to your word, we pray that you would open it up for us by the power of your spirit. Uh, We come this morning, some of us tired and some of us uh, maybe with distracted minds and distracted hearts. Would you give us focus right now as we are already in your presence? Would you speak to us? We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. We're going to be in chapter 18 this morning. You'll find that on page 12 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw him, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and he said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent behind him. The tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. It's given to us for our good and for God's glory. 
right on the surface here, if you notice, there's uh, there are two very different stories happening here, side by side, two very different people. There's the story of Abraham and the story of Sarah. And as we look from the very beginning here, you notice just that they appear to be on uh, very different pages, in very different places um, in their journey of faith. Because the story opens up with Abraham, and he uh, opens up with this incredible hospitality to these guests who have come to visit him. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. It's, we're, we're a little unsure about where in the story he begins to realize it's actually God that he's talking to, but he certainly does along the way. And here he is with this lavish, welcoming hospitality as he welcomes his God as he comes uh, for this visit in the middle of the day. Abraham laying out a feast, eager to serve. And at the same time, we see this picture of Sarah disbelieving, struggling, worn out, desperately needing God to meet her. And just the point this morning, the thing we're going to see is that God does meet her exactly where she is. So we're going to look at how he meets her. First, we're going to see Sarah's condition. And then we're going to look at God's question to her. And then we're going to see that there's an invitation for us as well. So first, Sarah's condition. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Sarah is worn out. She's worn out. That's the way she describes herself. She's worn out in body to begin with. She is, as we've seen time after time in this series, she is barren. If you were to go back to the very end of chapter 11, at the beginning of all of this story of Abraham, when Abraham is introduced and his wife Sarah is introduced, that's the very first thing that we are told about Sarah, that she is barren, that she had no child. The narrator tells us as if we didn't get it the first time. And you see, her barrenness is a constant theme in the, in the Abraham story. Time and again, Abraham, who has received these promises that he will have children and descendants as, uh, as many as the stars of the sky, time and again, the spotlight is on Sarah, his wife. No heir, no children. Why? Well, look at Sarah, because she is barren. Now, in, you know, in our day and time, if a couple's infertile, they'll go to the doctor and, and they'll both get tested. They'll find out where the biological problem is. Is it for the, for the wife? Is it for the husband? Well, then in her day, the assumption certainly, certainly seems to be that any lack of children was because of the wife. Time and again, it's Sarah who's described as barren. If you remember from a few chapters ago, about 15 years prior to our narrative this morning, uh, Hagar, the servant of Sarah, Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham in order to have children by her, and she gets pregnant and has a child. Who's barren? Sarah is. And on top of that, if that weren't enough, she weren't barren, worn out, she says, she was old. Back in chapter 11 and 12, when this started, when Abraham received God's promise in, in Haran, she was 65 years old then, and she and Abraham, who was 75 at the time, were, were both in this incredible, incredibly good health. They were lively people, but still, she was 65 when God broke into their lives. And then in chapter 16, when she uh, gives Hagar, her servant, to Abraham, she was 75 the point at which she'd apparently come to the conclusion that if God's promises are going to be fulfilled, they're not going to be fulfilled through me. And now, here she is at age 90. That's how old she is now. And Abraham is a hundred. Top of her barrenness, she is old. 
Now, if you didn't get that, look in verse 11. The narrator says that she and Abraham were old. They were old and they were advanced in years. In other words, he's saying, when I say old, I mean they were old. (laughs) They were old. And again, if you didn't get the point, she says the same thing in verse 12. She says, you know, I'm, I'm worn out and my husband is old. And he's old. And if we still didn't get it, we see in verse 11, it says that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, that she was now past menopause. And again, we come to her words that she was worn out. Verse 12. In other words, as the narrator tells us again and again, and as Sarah herself well knew, it was impossible for her to bear a child. It was impossible. She was done. And therefore, she reasoned, God's promises have failed, at least as far as they may have concerned her. Because she is worn out in body. But it's not the only way she's worn out. She's also worn out in soul. Not just her body, not just the outside of her. She is worn out deep down on the inside. Can't you hear that in her words, in the way that she speaks about herself? Again, she says, could this be now after I am worn out? After I'm worn out. Another translation puts it this way. I am withered up. You hear her estimation of herself. Can you hear the bitterness? God comes and says that she is going to have a child. And she laughs, a cynical hurt despairing laugh. And this cynicism, this despair goes a long way back for her because for decades she has been on a certain trajectory, a trajectory of bitterness and anger and sickness of soul. All along, as we've said, that she has been barren and certainly in her culture and certainly for her as an individual, her barrenness was her shame. She found herself shamed in her culture because she could not bear children. And here she was, not only a woman and a wife who couldn't bear children, she was the wife of one who has received such incredible promises, and yet she cannot produce the heir that she so desires. Back in chapter 16, as she's on the verge of giving her maidservant Hagar to Abraham, she says it this way, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, it's possible that uh, Sarah is simply uh, theologically sophisticated and correct enough to say the Lord is omnipotent, all things are in his hand. But, uh, so in that sense, certainly what she says is true, but can you hear the edge to it, right? The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So she gives Hagar into Abraham's arms, and then as soon as Hagar gets pregnant, Hagar despises Sarah. And what does Sarah do? She comes back to Abraham, and she essentially says this, this is your fault. I gave my servant into your hands, and look what has happened. May the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, she says, may God be my judge, but Abraham, you have brought this on us. You hear the edge to that. Decades of struggle and disappointment for her. You see, she has seemingly been sidelined from the promises of God. For all these years, as Abraham has been receiving time and again these renewed promises of God, that you will have an heir, it is not until almost the very end that she is explicitly named in this. So back in chapter 16, when she looks at Hagar and says, maybe God will fulfill the promises through her, it's been implied all along that Sarah, the wife, should be the one to bear the child. But God's never explicitly said that. 
But in chapter 17, uh, right before this incident, God has renewed his promise to Abraham and he said, it's actually not Ishmael, the child of Hagar, who is the promised child. Your wife, Sarah, in her old age will bear you a child and you will name him Isaac. He will be for you the child of promise. So in other words, Sarah is not explicitly named in this promise until here she is at age 90. So now here, when it is too late, God says, yeah, her. I'm going to fulfill the promise through her now that it's impossible for her to bear children. And you can imagine maybe how that felt to Sarah. All these decades of wondering, is God going to fulfill this promise through me? And now her body is good as dead. And it's like God is twisting the knife in her saying, yeah, you, Sarah, I'm going to do this through you. Sarah was a woman who was praised for her beauty. If you remember earlier in the story when Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt when they're fleeing famine and they go down to, have, uh, to find food in Egypt, Abraham's scared because he says, Sarah, you are beautiful, and as soon as Pharaoh and his people see you, Pharaoh's going to take you into his harem and they're going to kill me because I'm your husband. So he uh, entices her to lie, to say oh, what's really a half-truth, that she is his sister and not his wife. And Pharaoh does exactly that. He sees how beautiful he is. He takes her into his house. And we're going to see, if that weren't bad enough, uh, in, in chapter 20 after this, uh, Abraham does the same thing to Sarah again with Abimelech, a, a neighboring king as well, uh, even at age 90s. What are we seeing? That Sarah was this internationally renowned beauty. She'd been given this gift of God. But now she has become so hard and cold on the inside that we have this person who is beautiful but bitter. An incredibly sad picture. No longer having a beauty that went through, down through her skin, down to her soul. A beauty of both body and soul. But now this cold statue of a woman. Because life has not gone for Sarah the way she wanted it to. And so now she is worn out in soul. The book of Proverbs captures the power of this kind of sickness of, of soul, the sickness of heart. Here's what it says in a few places. Chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. 14.10. The heart knows its own bitterness. And no stranger shares its joy. 15.13. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. But by sorrow of heart is the spirit crushed. Chapter 17, verse 22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but by sorrow of heart, the, but by, uh, excuse me, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Maybe you've known the power of that in your own life when things are crushed and you are soul sick. What about you? What about me? Have you known a soul sickness like this? Maybe there's a time when you have, maybe you're going through it right now. Maybe like Sarah, you can't have children and it's pushing you over the edge. Or maybe you have children and they're pushing you over the edge. Maybe you're wanting to be married, but nothing. Maybe you're married, but disillusioned and despairing. Maybe you feel trapped in a job that's knowing, that is going nowhere. Maybe you're at a point in life where you're looking back over your life and you're wondering if it really mattered, what, if anything, you really accomplished. Or that maybe you see at this point in your life that it seems like things are gradually just slipping away. Your friends are dying. Your children are far away. No one really remembers anymore all your great career successes. Maybe your health is slipping away as well. And you feel like somehow maybe you've outlived your life. And all the good days are in the past. 
And that can happen to you in your later years, but it can happen much, much sooner as well if all the good has already passed us by. Well, how do you respond when you, have, when you are worn out in body and in soul? Are you like Sarah, cynical and angry and just weary? Does it come out in biting sarcasm, laughing in derision at God, even as he speaks his promises? Does it come out in white-hot fits of rage? Do you have a hair trigger, easily frustrated with the situations and the people around you? Has it made you become a control freak, obsessed with the drive to make your life work, because at the end of the day, it is all up to you, and it's slipping through your fingers? Does it play out for you in a cold distance from others, that you won't let anyone else get too close Maybe you're ready to quit. Maybe at some significant point in your life you did quit. You quit on a, vac- on a vocation. You quit on a friendship. You quit on a marriage. You quit on hope. You quit on God. Maybe you know just what Sarah's condition feels like, and it's not so different from your own. Or maybe, maybe that's not the way it feels for you always, but at least you've had glimpses. I know I have. But the story doesn't end here, and it never does, does it? Not simply with Sarah's condition, but the next thing we see here is where God meets Sarah in her condition. And he comes to her with a question. He comes and brings her a question. And in order to do that, God comes very close and is present with her. He comes to their tents. As we said, you know, here Abraham is. He extends this incredible hospitality to these three strangers that come. And we'll see that we're stopping this morning right in the middle of this incident. It stretches out over chapters 18 and 19. And as we'll come to see that it is God himself who is standing here before Abraham with two angels who are with him. And we don't know when Abraham finally realized that's what's happening. Certainly when two strangers come that you've never seen before and they say, Abraham, where's your wife Sarah? I'm coming back next year and she will have a child. You know that you're not dealing with uh, just some sort of normal stranger who comes to visit. It's also possible that Abraham, in his spiritual uh, attuneness to God, remember Abraham has been walking with God for a long time, that he knows from the beginning who this is. If you notice his very first statement in um, verse... uh, Verse four, uh, excuse me, verse three. He says, "O Lord, if I found favor in your sight." Well, we as readers know immediately this is God. In verse one, it says, "The Lord Yahweh came to visit him," and he says, "O Lord." Now, the way that's actually spelled in the Hebrew, it's the way that you spell it in Hebrew consistently when you're talking about God. In other words, he may well, right at the very beginning, realize this is God here. Oh God, come, come into my tents. Let me feed you. Let me respond appropriately to you. So God here comes on the scene to bring his question to Sarah. Now, why else would he be here? You notice that God has already given all these promises to Abraham. He's just spoken to Abraham in chapter 17. And now he shows up essentially with no new information, but he comes and he says it again in the hearing of Abraham. Why? So that Sarah will hear it with her very own ears. You notice before he even begins to speak, what does he say to Abraham? He says, where is your wife Sarah? She's over there in the tent behind you, behind the tent door. In parentheses, she's listening to us even now as we speak. So now that God knows that, and that Abraham knows that Sarah is there, he speaks the promises again. He says, I will come back in a year, and your wife Sarah, the one who is barren, the one who is worn out in body and soul, she will give birth to a child. You see how remarkable this is. For Sarah, for 25 years, she has been following Abraham as he follows God. 
As Abraham time and again gets the word of the Lord and she gets it, as it were, secondhand from him. We know from chapter 16, even the slave woman Hagar has had God come and confront her and speak to her. But Sarah has been hanging on at Abraham's word all this time. And now at the very end, before he fills the promise for her, he comes and speaks to her. And as he does it, can you feel what he is doing? He is taking his finger... And he is putting it right on the sorest, most delicate, most tender part of her entire life. Right at the heart of her barrenness. Right at the heart of her cynicism and sarcasm. He comes and he says, Sarah, I am coming to you. I am coming for you. You will have a child. And how does Sarah respond? Lord, thank you. I knew that you were good. What does she do? I mean, think about it. Some of us have actually said these words or at least thought them. If only I had the opportunity to speak face-to-face with God and to ask Him my questions, then things would go better for me in life. Well, Sarah gets that chance, right? God is there. And what does she do when He gives her His promises? She laughs at Him. She laughs at Him. The cynical hard edge of her disappointment comes right out at God. How does God respond? See how tender he is with her as we have seen him be time and time again with his people. She laughs and essentially calls God a liar. And he does not destroy her. He doesn't reject her. He doesn't exclude her from his promises. Instead, he asks her a question. He takes her pain and her alienation and he comes to her with a question. He says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I remember when I was in probably fourth or fifth grade, a friend of mine and I were Christians and we got in a conversation with a friend who was not. And, uh, you know, can only imagine how theological conversations among fourth, uh, fourth and fifth uh, graders go. And uh, actually, as I'm finding, as I have a child younger than that, they can actually get pretty sophisticated pretty quick. Uh, well, here's what John Rockford said. John, if you're listening to this tape, I did not have a good answer for you then, but I do now. And here it is. Here's what John said when we were talking about God. He said this. He said, can God create a rock that is too big for him to pick up? And I thought, man, what kind of question is that? Now, it, it's really possible that fourth, fifth grade John knew at that point that he was tapping into what is known in uh, the history of philosophy as the omnipotence paradox. He might have been well aware of that. He might have known that that question goes back at least to the 12th century when Averro and later Thomas Aquinas wrestled with this and scholastic uh, medieval Christianity. He might have known that, but I sort of doubt it. But somewhere... He had heard that question. Maybe you've heard that too, or one that gets lumped in it with it. Questions like this. Can God make a square circle? Can he make a red blue? Can he make uh, things that are logically impossible? And I remember us getting t- tied up in knots at, the, at that point. But here, God comes and he says, is there anything too hard for the Lord to do? He's not getting sidetracked by fourth grade philosophical discussions. He's not talking about things that are logically impossible. What's he saying? He says, is there anything in the world that can be done that God cannot come and do? In other words, Sarah, you have decided that there is no way forward. Now, Sarah, is there anything too hard for the Lord? 
Is there anything that the God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who sustains your very breath right now, the one who has created all that you see, the one who has all power, the one that has been speaking into your life and Abraham's life for decades, the one who is going to give you this promised land, who has said he's going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars, the one who has said that through you all the world will be blessed. Is there anything too hard for him? See, he meets her doubt and her struggle with a question. In other words, he's saying, Sarah, you are limited, but I am not. You are, but I am not. Remember growing up, uh, how much I love comeback movies, you know, like especially sports movies. Uh, when, for those in my generation, when we were kids, it was bad news bears when we were young. You know, the down and out team that doesn't have any skill that somehow comes back and wins the Little League championship. If I just ruined it for you, I'm sorry. The movie's 30 years old. You should have seen it by now. <laughs> Uh, or, you know, the, the possibly the greatest sports movie ever made, Hoosiers. You remember Hoosiers? You've got this small little Indiana team that can't quite get it together that actually comes and wins the state championship. What's the message of all those movies? If we just dig down deep enough and hard enough, if we just come together as a team, if our, if our coach would just stop drinking, then... <laughs> then we can win the championship. And in the end, they always do. If we can just reach down, we can make life happen. And Sarah has found time and again that she can't. And we can't make the comeback. But God comes and says, Sarah, is there anything that God cannot do? Because he comes and says, Sarah, I can do what is for you impossible. But there's another, there's another dimension to that question. As we see it translated here, is there anything too hard for the Lord? It's a good translation. But literally what it says here is, is, is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is there anything that is so far beyond your imagination? Is there anything so wonderful? Is there anything that has such creativity and beauty that God could not bring it about? Not only is there anything that's not, you know, not just impossible, but beyond imagining for Sarah and for us. Because she was sitting there in her situation saying, God can't reverse age. He can't reopen a womb. Maybe we say similar things. God can't revitalize a relationship. He can't bring healing and forgiveness and life. Can't heal a broken marriage, a broken friendship. Can't heal and put back together shattered hopes and dreams. God can't raise the dead. Can he? See, there, this is the whole in Sarah's I'm worn out argument. I'm worn out in body. I'm worn out in soul. And the whole in her argument is that she has forgotten God. She's forgotten the identity of the one who made these promises to her. She has forgotten the reliability of God, the power of God, the love of God that has come to meet her at this very moment. And here in our story, even as we uh, close at at verse 15, Sarah is still in process. All the pieces haven't been neatly tied up for her. In fact, she's not going to make a significant turn that we're going to see until chapter 20 when she does turn and finds joy. But right now, Sarah in process, which is where we live most of our lives as well. Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too wonderful for God? Even as God speaks those words to her and speaks them to us, what he is saying on the flip side of that, as he asks her that confounding question, he is at the same time giving her an invitation, an invitation to himself. 
An invitation to Sarah and to us to take our condition, to bring it into the searching light of this question of God. As he asks us, is there anything too difficult in your life for me? Is there anything too wonderful in your life for me to bring about? Is there anything too difficult for me, too wonderful, beyond my power? The answer, of course, is no. Now, this is clearly not a question of name it and claim it for Sarah. As if simply this, all her life she's wanted a baby boy, and so if she just believes hard enough and trusts God who can do anything, he'll give it to her. You see that this promise was brought first by God to her. He said, this is what I'm going to do for you. And her faith was anything but name it, claim it. She was saying, God, I hear you saying this to me, and I don't believe you. If anything, she was praying the prayer of disbelief to her God. This is not about Sarah's great faith. It's not about her power to make things appear in her life, but it's about the power of God to bring about his plan, his blessing for her. He's going to bring it to her. What of God's promises can he not bring to pass in your life and my life as well? His promise of forgiveness in Christ that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is his arm too short to bring that about? Is that too wonderful for him? Is that too difficult for him? He's promised to give us a new heart, one made of flesh rather than of stone, one that is responsive to him and towards him rather than hard and bitter. Is that beyond the reach of our God? He's promised to be with us no matter what happens to us in this life. He's promised to return one day, to set the world right side up again, to secure an eternity of healed life, of restored universe, where there is no longer any sickness and no longer any death and no longer any curse. Is that beyond God? Is it too hard for Him? Is it too wonderful for Him? Even as God asked Sarah that question, and even as He asked us that question, it is an invitation to us to anchor our lives in God's story. To anchor our lives in the promises of God, in the story of what He is doing in the world and what He is doing in our lives as well. You see, Sarah is secure because at the end of the day, her course of life wasn't determined by her attempts to somehow take God and fit Him into the contours of all her hopes and dreams so that He would perform for her. That was not her hope. Sarah's hope was that God had taken her and brought her into his story, into his plan for the world, into his plan to bring blessing and promise through this promised son, Isaac. You see, God reminded her again, Sarah, this story is not about you. This story is about me and what I am doing, and I can bring to pass all that I purpose to do. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 reflects on Abraham and Sarah, as they are receiving these promises of God. Listen to what he says. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since, he, since God had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unsearchable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope set before us. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He's saying this. He said, God said it to him, and God keeps his word. And if that weren't enough, God promised it as well. By these two things, God has bound himself to us. He's made a covenant, a promise with us that won't be broken. He said, because of that, Abraham and Sarah, at the end of the day, knew they could trust God because he was trustworthy and had promised himself to them. And so the result for them, and he says the result for us, is that we too might flee to God. For strong encouragement, we might too might hold fast to the hope set before us and that we might, like Abraham and Sarah, have a steadfast anchor of the soul. Because our hope for God to come through for us is not resting in shifting sand. It is like an anchor that has come down deep and lodged onto something solid and unmovable. It has hooked itself around the rock of Christ and it cannot be moved. Do you hear what he's saying to us, what he's saying to Sarah? Your deadness, your worn-outness, your being withered up is not the end of the story. My promise holds true, and I will do for you all that I have promised. I will give you myself, even as I have promised to do. And at the end of the day, that that anchor is gripped in the promise that we see even more clearly, not just from God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, as unbreakable as that was, But in his fulfillment of his promise to us, he didn't simply say it, he did it. He came to us in the person of Christ and died the death that we deserve, that we might be forgiven, that our hope, our salvation, that our strength might be found in him, this unmovable rock, and that we might be anchored to him. So maybe we, like Sarah, come with this condition of being worn out in body and in soul. Maybe, too, this morning we need to hear God's question for us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? We need to hear again that it's an invitation to us to remember that the answer to that question is no. That God can and will accomplish all His purposes. And He calls us to be anchored in Him and anchored in that hope, even now in the middle of the story, just as even now Sarah is in the middle of her story being tenderly confronted by her God. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you as people who struggle to trust you, not simply because we have doubt, but because often we are worn out. We have a barrenness. We feel withered on the outside sometimes and all the way down on the inside. Would you bring your light and your healing and your hope? Would you open our eyes that we might too step into the promises of God, remembering that our hope is the fact that you are faithful, not that we are good, not that we are smart, not that we faithfully follow you like Sarah. Oftentimes we are bitterly and cynically laughing at your promises, yet you do not give up on us because of Christ. Open our eyes, open our heart, that we might know the joy of your presence, the joy of your faithfulness. As we remember that when we see this question in action in our lives, is anything too difficult, is anything too hard, is anything too wonderful for the Lord, we can joyfully say no, no, because you are God. And it's the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.